Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy holidays from all of us at Deep State Radio. This holiday season, treat yourself and a friend to a DSR membership. For a limited time when you become a member, you can give a friend or family member a free membership. If you purchase an annual membership, you can give an annual membership. When you purchase a monthly membership, you can give a monthly membership. Members receive exclusive bonus content, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and access to our bi-weekly notes from the sub-basement. Our members-only content, written twice per week by host David Rothkoff. Act now and take $20 off an annual membership or $2 off a monthly membership. Visit bit.ly slash member news code HOLIDAY2021 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash member and code HOLIDAY2021. Thank you. Nine. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special holiday episode of the podcast. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am here in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., joined on the podcast by two of the wisest commentators on the Washington scene, both from the Washington Post, E.J. Dion and Jen Rubin. Hi, guys. How are you? Great to be with you and Jen. Terrific to be here. I want to look back at the year and There are a few things I would like to look back at, but obviously the place we start is at the beginning of the year with January 6th. And I'd just like to ask a kind of an open-ended question. Given the events of January 6th, how are we doing? You know, how how do we respond to those events, Jen? On one hand, you can look at a whole lot of people in the Senate, on the Select Committee, which has been a pleasant surprise out in civil society, which are doing a lot of really good work to bring attention to the threats to democracy and to get across that it was not simply what happened on that day, but an entire coup plot that we were fortunate to evade, but that could very well be a dress rehearsal for the future. The bad news is that we haven't done yet much about it. The Senate is stalemated on any kind of meaningful voting rights reform or even reform of the Electoral Count Act, which would prevent uh, John Eastman's memo from becoming reality. And of course, we're just perhaps at the end of the beginning, but still uh, not anywhere near the end on the January 6th committee. I will say that I find one complaint that's popular out there misplaced. And that is why the Justice Department is not investigating and prosecuting. They have investigators. It's called the January 6th Select Committee. Everything that is being turned up by that is being turned over to the FBI and the Justice Department. 
the difficulty is not going to be interviewing or re-interviewing those people. I don't think that's going to be necessary. The difficulty is going to be the judgment as to who and whether they can establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And I'm beginning to get the sense that put Trump off to one side, that we might see some prosecutions of some relatively high level people. And I would point to Jeffrey Clark as a prime contender for that distinction. So I suppose it's a long way of saying that we dodged a bullet. We haven't yet done the hard work of erecting a shield against future January 6th, but we are at least investigating and beginning to take that seriously. EJ, what Jen says makes a lot of sense, but when she says we've dodged a bullet, the image that comes to my mind is from the Matrix, where, you know, like Keanu Reeves bends over backwards and the bullet is moving so slowly. We're not sure exactly when it hits anything. How do you think we're doing so far? I broadly agree with Jen, particularly on the Justice Department, where I just want to say I think that it makes sense for the Justice Department not to jump in and look political and that Merrick Garland is taking a lot of grief. And I confess I'm a Merrick Garland fan from way, way, way back. But I think he if he does prosecute, he wants to be on the firmest, most old fashioned prosecutorial ground he can have. And I think Jen is right that the committee is going to turn over stuff to justice. And at that point, that's when we can start making judgments about whether he's being too cautious or not. The one thing I want to say is, who would have believed you if you had said that one of the most interesting, powerful duos in Washington would be Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney? That is just an amazing thing to watch. And, and it's a, that is one powerfully good thing for our republic. And it's taken a lot of courage for her to do this. I obviously disagree with her on all manner of things. But on this one, and it's an important one, she's been right. And the two of them together, I think, have been really good. I worry very much about the Matrix situation you described that, yeah, we sort of dodged the bullet because Biden got elected because he won the election. But I think there are still a lot of bullets out there that are moving very slowly and that the failure so far to enact both the, you know, the Freedom to Vote Act, the Voting Rights Act, and also a revision to the Electoral Count Act, which no one had thought about since it was passed in 1887, I think it was. We got to do that stuff. Now, I am perhaps too optimistic or hopeful, but I would note that in his interview on Fox, the you know, Dr. No interview on Bill Back Better, Joe Manchin did not rule out changing the rules around the filibuster. And I think that thanks to senators like Angus King and John Tester and Tim Kaine and others, they are making progress. And Schumer, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, has said he's going to put voting rights and freedom to vote on the floor very quickly in January. And maybe the one blessing out of the uh, complexities now surrounding Build Back Better is that the Freedom to Vote Act and the Voting Rights Act will move to the front of the line. But what's really disturbing still, and I don't have to say this to you or Jen or probably to this audience, where are the other Republicans? Why is it just Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger? Even 
Republicans like Romney, who have had, you know, or the many, you know, the, the handful who voted for impeachment, they need to be out there more than they are. And the party just doesn't want to take the chance of alienating Donald Trump's supporters. And when you look at what's going on in the states, in Wisconsin, in Georgia, in Texas, to roll back voting rights, take over the counting of elections, this is scary stuff. And, you know, this is not the Republican Party that helped give us the Voting Rights Act in the first place way back in 1965. And it should disturb, you know, not just Democrats that this is going on. Let me add just a couple things to what EJ just said. I think the culprit in this phenomenon of decent Republicans, if you will, continuing to be mum is actually Mitch McConnell. From my understanding and my reporting, the edict has gone on out. There shall be no messing with election rules for 2022 and beyond, that that is a red line for him. He is all about power, all about retaining power. And for better or worse, he, to some extent, more than Trump even, does hold enormous sway with his members. And because he retains some mild patina of respectability, they have not challenged him. They have not pushed him. And I think unless they feel that somehow their majority is in danger, which I don't think it is, or their potential majority is in danger, they're going to continue to block this. And and that's not by way of an excuse. It's by way of an explanation. Now, that certainly doesn't excuse why governors and other Republicans out there have not done more. I will say one thing that I have been disappointed in regarding President Biden, and I've been candid about this. I don't think he's put enough attention on this. Frankly, Liz Cheney has done more to elevate this issue by reading those texts into the record one evening at a hearing of the January 6th committee to impress upon people the seriousness of our threat to democracy than Biden has. And I really don't understand that. I get that he wants to do things in a bipartisan fashion, but let's be honest, whatever bipartisan thing has already been done, and that's the infrastructure bill. And for him to continually dawdle or mumble or deflect is, number one, incredibly disheartening to voting rights proponents and to African-American voters and to voting rights activists. And secondly, it's not in keeping with his constitutional role or what he promised to do in that campaign. He ran on the soul of America. He ran on returning our democracy to its robust health. And he's not doing it right now. And I find that curious and frustrating. And I hope he changes that in the new year. I don't want to filibuster you out, David. I just want to underscore that. We've both written this. I think Biden needs to be out there in a much stronger way. He says all the right words when he, you know, when he went down to South Carolina, to South Carolina State, he talked about voting rights. But the administration has not put real muscle into this, and they have to start doing that for political reasons, but above all, for moral and substantive reasons. You know, all podcasts have a talking filibuster. So if you keep (laughs) talking, I'm filibustered. And and it's fine with me. The less I say, the better on this. But let, let let me pick up on what both of you are saying here. You say Biden has not been strong enough on this. Obviously, one of the other big stories, looking back at the years that we have a new president, 
What has he been strong enough on, Jen? I think two things that you can point to. First of all, I don't think he has gotten enough credit for the American Rescue Plan and the Infrastructure Plan, both of which I think are setting the economy up for what I would call not the Goldilocks economy, but the Candide economy, the best of all worlds, which is continued robust growth with the hope that Powell will keep inflation under control. And I think we are seeing a lot of green shoots now. I think we are seeing robust consumer confidence. Obviously, employment is on the increase. The dollar is very strong. The markets are very strong. Corporate profits are very strong. So despite a lot of caterwauling, and I don't dismiss the seriousness of inflation, he's done a fairly effective job in kind of steering us through this really unprecedented period of time. Two other things I would give him credit for. Number two, an incredibly diverse, competent, large number of federal judges have been appointed and confirmed. And he's doing it very quickly. He's getting more, about 40, than uh, President Trump did. And for that, he deserves credit. And lastly, I think he does deserve credit on COVID. Um, We are fast arriving to the point where If you do the things that government has made it easy to do, get shots, get a booster shot, wear a mask, COVID is no longer a life-threatening or even a seriously debilitating illness for these people. And when we get to the point at which responsible people can treat COVID essentially like the flu, not something you want, something you certainly want to take precautions against but that really no longer poses a deadly or debilitating threat, then I think we've crossed a major uh, hurdle and we can really, in fact, get back to our lives. He cannot force people to get inoculated. We have learned that. And Dr. Collins at the National Institutes of Health made a very interesting comment, which is we should have invested more in behavioral studies because no one expected 60 million people to refuse to take a life-saving vaccine. And Biden is certainly trying, but it's going to take more of Trump, frankly, as we were chatting about before we went on. And it's going to take people in the evangelical community to decide whether they really want to save people's lives or not. So, EJ, it's the same question, but let me approach it from a different angle, because we can all go down a list of accomplishments of the administration so far. Jen mentioned the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion. There was the $1.2 trillion infrastructure plan. That's $3.1 trillion. That's a lot. It's probably 6 million new jobs that have been created. The economy has come back. There are these 40 new judges that have been appointed. A lot of Trump executive orders were undone. We re-entered the WHO, we re-entered the Paris Accords, we ended the 20-year catastrophe of the Afghanistan war, but Biden's approval ratings are kind of low, and it raises the question, can you be an effective president, not a strong president? EJ, how is that possible? That's an interesting way to cast a question. Let me just underscore, I agree with the list. And a couple of things in the rescue plan, and we'll get to Build Back Better at some point, I'm sure, but the original rescue plan passing a, an expanded child tax credit is a huge deal, and it's cut child poverty by an estimated 40 percent. 
And somehow or other, we can't let that go. Somehow or other, Joe Manchin has to be persuaded to do something in that direction, in my view. And secondly, the healthcare expansions. Obamacare had more people sign up today, I believe, as the today was the numbers were put out than ever before. And those healthcare expansions are a big deal. And again, those have to be built on going forward. And Jen mentioned this in a post today. I got a kick out of exactly the same thing she did, which is a big Wall Street Journal story saying the strong U.S. economy is leading the world out of a recession. And it was just particularly nice to see that in the Wall Street Journal, as the late Michael Harrington said, whose news pages are as informative as its editorial opinions are quaintly reactionary. But it was a great piece. You know, it was a great piece. Biden has to sort of, I, I think there are a couple of places where he's fallen down or where events have hurt him. The virus is obviously one. Again, Jen and I agreed that that speech he gave yesterday was more important than probably a lot of other people thought, because he's really got to get a handle on the virus again and really make clear. I think what they were doing on the virus was lost in all of the reporting and setbacks for Build Back Better. And obviously, a lot of Americans, as he said, are very frustrated that this thing was supposed to go away in June, and it didn't. And maybe he went uh, too far out on the limb in June in in a uh, kind of mission accomplished sort of moment, because no one anticipated how many people would refuse to get the vaccine. No, few people anticipated the power of the last variant. And obviously, almost nobody anticipated Omicron, which I think is the worst name variant ever, because it sounds like an ugly, scary creature in a sci-fi movie, the dreaded Omicron. He's really got to focus hard in the coming months on the virus. And I liked the way in which he mixed up, he, he brought together two things. On the one hand, he said two nice things, not one, but two nice things about Donald Trump. He said, you know, Trump got the booster. It's one of the few things he and I agree on. And he also gave Trump credit, along with the scientists, for helping make us the first one of the first countries to have the vaccine. I thought that was smart to even if you can just shave off a few people from the uh, Trump wing to start getting vaccinated, that would be a good thing. But then he went really hard at the disinformation out there on the vaccine and uh, masks and all of that. And I hope he continues with that campaign. And I think his whole I want to be bipartisan thing is way past its sell date. It worked for the uh, infrastructure bill. It was a nice thing back in the 90s. It ain't the 90s anymore. And I think that's where he's going to have to be much tougher in 2022. I got to believe they know that. But I think this bipartisan thing is really, really deep in him and goes back to the fact that, you know, he was welcomed into the Senate back in the 70s by a lot of nice Republicans who were very warm to him. But I wish some of those folks like Matt Mathias were still around, but alas, they're not. I, I have a, an unusual take on um, presidential popularity. Number one, I think it's almost impossible to maintain a high level of popularity when you have inflation. I think that is just an automatic reflex that people have that probably shaves, pick a number, five, seven points off any president's popularity rating. 
regardless of whether presidents can control that, regardless of whether you think this is the Federal Reserve and not Biden, that's not how people think. Inflation scares them. The president should be fixing them. So that's number one. I think the era of presidents who have high approval ratings is just gone. When you have one party that is 95% inclined to dislike the other party, then there's no way you build a majority of 60%, let alone 50%. So the pool of people who are persuadable by any president has shrunk so dramatically that you probably have a ceiling of maybe pick a number, 55%. And that means a huge chunk of your own party, a few independents, and practically none of the other side. And it seems weird to us that he is, from a polling standpoint, not that different from where Trump was. But that's because all of us think of popularity as a function of good governance. And it's not. It's how people are inclined to view the president with inflation, but more importantly, that everything is now colored by this hyper-partisanship. And with you throw in a very hyperventilating media that is very anxious to show their independence and the fact they could be as tough on Biden. And you just have a formula where it's very, very hard for a president to get a popularity rating that goes much above 50%. So I'm sure he is concerned about it. He's choked about it. But, you know, I think it's not something that can affect your governance. And moreover, we've discovered that presidents don't necessarily need a high popularity rating to get reelected. They just have to be running against someone who's even less popular. And when we get around to 2024, um, if we make it that far, you know, it's going to be a choice, not a referendum. And even in 2022, if the Democrats are smart, they will make it a choice, not a referendum. So I would urge everyone who is very upset about his low approval numbers and the sign of the demise of the Democratic Party and the design of the demise of the midterm elections from the Democrat standpoint to just take a breather and frankly, ignore that figure for a while and concentrate on what consumers are doing right now. Consumer confidence is up. Concentrate on behavior. Concentrate on what he has done. And frankly, we haven't talked at all about national security policy which I also think has been underrated. So I think, frankly, presidential popularity is very much a function of polarization and news coverage and trying to boost it up by doing a lot of fancy messaging thing probably isn't going to get you very far. David, I got to jump in and agree in part and dissent in part, if I could. I agree that there's a ceiling now uh, that didn't exist before because of the nature of partisanship in the country. On the other hand, I point out that in uh, uh, Washington Post ABC News poll in June, 60% of Americans said they approved of Biden's handling of the coronavirus. That's down to the high 40s. So it's about a two-point margin negative right now. That's a lot of movement downward. But let's say overall approval, let's let's accept Jen's number. It may be a little higher, but let's accept 55 is the ceiling. He's a long way from that now. And that that 41 or 42 or 43, whatever the right number is, 
That's a real problem for him. It's a problem for the Democrats in the midterm elections. And if you look at the polling on the midterms right now, which are almost a year away, but nonetheless, it's not good for the Democrats right now. He's got to get his numbers up for the Democrats to have any chance at all of holding on to the House, which is going to be really difficult, but the, and the Senate, which is a little bit easier. But the second point is, I am really, really worried about disenchantment, disillusionment, and demobilization on the part of Democrats, particularly younger Democrats. And the fact that it's taken so long and been such an ugly process to pass Build Back Better is, I think, one example, or the fact that we have not yet reached a conclusion on voting rights. There are a lot of young voters who say, is this worth it? People who love politics the way we do can say, uh, you know, quote Max Weber, like George Will and I like to do, you know, politics is the long, slow boring of hard boards. But that sure ain't exciting to anybody. And right now, I think people have to face up to that disillusionment. And if it stays like this, the Republicans absolutely will win a landslide in 2022. So you really have to show some real progress on some of this agenda and take the fight to the other side. Otherwise, this I think this demobilization will continue right through 2022. And just one small caveat, and that is that if the economy does improve without doing anything else, Biden's numbers will come up a bit. Now, whether that's enough in and of itself, I don't know. but. EJ makes a point which I strongly endorse, and that is right now, I would argue that voting rights reform, democracy reform is much more important on the calendar than doing Build Back Better. Build Back Better may get done in some fashion, whether it looks like Build Back Better or whether it's just a you know hodgepodge of a few things. But voting rights reform, if that is not accomplished, I think the base is going to be entirely demoralized. And African-American voters in particular, that is not a group where we've already, frankly, seen some erosion in male black voters for the Democratic Party that they can afford to depress and to leave unenergized for 2022. So at this point, both for policy reasons and political reasons and certainly constitutional reasons, I would place a much higher priority come January on getting something on voting rights, even if it's just defensive, even if it's just to protect from vote rigging, from the John Eastman political shenanigans that might steal a presidential election. This is normally the point in the podcast where we take a a, a very brief break and say goodbye to the people who have been listening for free. And then we continue on for 10 or 15 minutes more for the people who are members. But this is our last podcast before Christmas. And uh, uh, so I'm not going to take a break here. And I'm going to let everybody continue on to the end. And if you feel a lot of gratitude for that, even though you've been listening for free, then become a member. You know, that's the thing to do. That's a useful Christmas gift um, that you can give us. And we Santa, David, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. and And we will we will give it back to you in terms of programming like this. But it seems to me that everything, the subtext of all of this is 2021 was the year that we realized democracy was really in danger. We had inklings of this. We, we watched as Trump tried to carve away at it. We were worried about it. But I don't think anybody sat there watching 
the uh, ramparts of the Capitol being sieged on January 6th and said, oh, I expected this because I don't think anybody expected it. And it was a huge shock to the system. And all of a sudden, all of us were looking out and saying, this could come undone. This thing that we have taken for granted throughout our lives could be ended. And so in all of politics and all the discussion, we talk about small ball, we can talk about popularity, we can talk about any, any individual bill. Everything comes down to, does this make our democracy stronger or does it make it weaker? Does it put it more in jeopardy or not? And, and you both have made reference to voting rights reform. And I've had conversations with people in the White House where they've said the exact same thing. But I have to say, the most optimistic conversations I've had with people are maybe the door is open a little. There is a slight possibility. Maybe Manchin and Cinema will accept some kind of filibuster reform that can lead to some kind of modest voting rights reform. But really, it's more likely it doesn't happen. And what if it doesn't? I think we are in a great deal of trouble. And this is what happens when you only have 50 votes in the United States Senate. You can look back and second guess a number of those races, Hal Cunningham's um, sexting um, scandal or other races or, frankly, races that the Democrats spent too much money on, which could have been directed to better places. But this is what we're dealing with, the reality of 50 seats. I would say a couple of things. First of all, I confess that when Trump lost, and again, when January 6th happened, I had the same reaction, which is, okay, now the bubble is burst. Okay, now people are going to come to their senses. And what we have found is that the MAGA cult and the information silo that these people exist in is so profoundly strong that it will endure or, in fact, grow in some kind of sci-fi sense, um, sucking up all of these defeats and continue to grow and to grow and to grow. And it is no longer possible, as some of my former Republicans, but still friends, as opposed to my former Republicans and former friends, to (laughs) say that the Republican Party is rescuable. There's no one to rescue it. There is no sense of moral courage or inclination, aside from a very few people, to do something about this. And I think the task in the coming year is to impress upon Mansion and cinema, the dire nature of this, that this is unlike anything else legislatively that the Senate does. You can put it in the category of declaring war or impeachment, that of all the things that elected representatives are supposed to be doing, protecting the Constitution is right at the top and is frankly the totality of their oath of office. And to impress upon them that if we don't do this, we are going to open the door to a world of hurt, to a system in which, frankly, I never thought I would say this, but the outcome of elections is no longer credible in the United States. It's like some foreign country where you figure, oh, well, these guys counted the votes, therefore we can't really depend upon the results. And that people, in essence, essentially give up and elections are simply viewed as the first step in a power struggle, sometimes a violent power struggle 
that is disastrous for our economy and for our body politic and for our society and for the world. And if we had a president who spoke in those words and we had, frankly, a chorus of people who command public attention, it would certainly help. And one thing I would like to see is that the former presidents, save one, get together and decide that they are going to do a national campaign for democracy. To see George W. Bush, to see Barack Obama, to see Bill Clinton go out and make the case for democracy and that they have never seen anything in their lifetime. They put aside their political differences and they rally the country and focus attention on the Senate to get some of these basic things done. It might not work, but why wouldn't you try it? Of all the times, is there anything more important that they could contribute? So I'm sure they have busy schedules, um, but I certainly would urge them to consider something along those lines, because this is a five alarm fire, really, uh, the country and the democracy is on fire. I have nothing to add to that eloquent statement on behalf of democracy for my colleague, except to say, if those bills don't pass, we are in the soup. I, I think we are in severe trouble. And that's why, and again, this could be too hopeful of me, but I, that's why I think there is a real shot there. And again, you know, if you look at the way Schumer has handled Joe Manchin on the democracy bills. He's given uh, Manchin every bit of room to get to the right place in the end. Manchin said the House bill for the People Act was too big. So Schumer said, OK, Joe, sit down with some of our good folks and rewrite the bill. So they rewrote the bill and produced the Freedom to Vote Act, which is a pretty strong bill, along with the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Uh, then Manchin said, I want this to pass with the Republicans. And Schumer said, OK. Go visit with the Republicans. I'd love to pass these bills with Republicans. And when the votes came, there were no Republicans for freedom to vote and Lisa Murkowski alone for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So now it's, OK, Joe, what can you do about the filibuster? So now you have a process where the argument is not let's carve out something for voting rights. The argument is the Senate has become dysfunctional. These rules don't work anymore. So if, Joe, if you want to restore what you think of as the old Senate, we need new rules. Uh, it's very Burkean that you need reform to conserve. And I still hope, and we haven't heard much from cinema on this, and most of her, what she said is, in a, in a way, even more negative on changing the rules than Manchin. I just can't believe that if Manchin comes around to rule changes that he proposes, that cinema will want to stand up and say, I am happy to be the one Democrat blocking voting rights. I, I can't see that. Maybe it'll happen, but I hope that it doesn't. I, I would add one thing to all that, and that is going back to something we spoke about earlier. In this effort, Biden's infatuation with bipartisanship is very damaging because it allows Manchin to cling to this, as you say, EJ, this never, never land, or it once was the land and it will never be again, this notion that somehow the filibuster works instrumentally to create consensus. That is dead. That is gone. And the more Biden talks about bipartisanship as if that is an ongoing thing, I think the harder it is to make clear to Manchin that 
whatever he thinks he's doing in the name of bipartisanship is not happening. That's not the world we live in. And that when we have a constitutional crisis, which this is, every elected leader has an obligation to act. So I would like to take one word out of the president's vocabulary. Perhaps this could be a a new game for us. Pick a word and he can't say it anymore. But the word would be bipartisanship. Uh, We've heard some advice for the president. Maybe he should harness the assistance of some former presidents and getting the message out about democracy and make it a, a choice in the upcoming election. I'll just go back and I'll go to EJ first and then to Jen. What, based on a year of watching Joe Biden be president, do you think he can or must do better going forward? I think, uh, first of all, we agree he needs to make democracy central to 2022 in sort of just about every respect. What I'd like to see him do, and, and what I'd for that matter like to see Kamala Harris do, is go into the parts of the country that voted for Trump, as well as the parts of the country that were part of the Biden base and need the help that some of the provisions of Build Back Better offer, and say, look, if we want to strengthen democracy, we need a more equal economy. We need a fairer economy where people can rise up. And there are groups in the country and regions in the country who have been left out for a long time. And we hear you, but not only do we hear you, we're actually trying to do something about it. Because, you know, Scranton Joe is a very attractive version of Joe, that he has had historically a capacity to speak to folks. And if I were giving advice to Kamala Harris, whom we haven't mentioned, and who's clearly, you know, facing all kinds of difficulties, I'd love to see her go into Kentucky and West Virginia and Tennessee and Arkansas, into those parts of the country and say, I'm not popular here. I want to talk to you about what we are trying to do for you, which happens to be stuff that unites people who are black, Latino and white, who happen to be all part of the working class. And I just think we've lost that class component of the Democratic argument that we counted on Joe Biden to restore to our vocabulary. And so I guess if you drop bipartisanship from the vocabulary, I would like to add the word class in various ways, maybe even not explicitly, but really to do that thing which he has done well. It's sprinkled in his speeches, but I'd like it to be a much stronger note in what he does in 2022. Because that's the core of the case for a bill back better that still hasn't been made because no one knows what's in those damn bills because they haven't passed them yet. I would echo all of that. And I would say one of Biden's better moments in the last couple of months was when he went to Kentucky on the tornadoes, because that's what he was saying. He says, we're here to help. And that simple message does, as he would like to say, lower the temperature or what I would call lower the defenses that people are willing to recognize and talk to someone who they think has their best interests at heart. So I would echo that. I'll be a little bit more practical because I agree with all of the ideological and big theme pictures that uh, and ideas that EJ offered. 
Very specifically, he needs to be more visible. He hasn't given Oval Office speeches. He doesn't do enough primetime interviews. Democrats complain about this constantly. We never see him. And there has to be a better medium between what we've seen in this past year and Trump, who you know was in our faces constantly. He has to be a bigger presence in the public dialogue. And I would say when he does that, he has to be shorter. His ongoing weaving through, you know, history and the details of every bill make him a very ineffective communicator when he does go out, because after about 10 minutes, even I get bored and tune out, and <laughs> that, which is hard to do. And third, he has to be more pointed. Um, and that's what we've been talking about. To make elections are choices. Democracy is in danger. He's got to identify what the issues are, who's on what side, and offer himself as a solution. Frankly, the fact that the Democrats have not been able to make hay out of the fact that Republicans don't want to change the tax code or the laws so that the IRS can collect what is already owed and doesn't want to change the tax laws to force 55 corporations that are paying nothing. The fact they haven't made that a cornerstone of their messaging is political malpractice. That's the kind of stuff that they should be focused on. We're for the little guy. And this goes to EJ's point. He's got to get into some fisticuffs. He's got to, I realize he's trying to get a lot of things, corporations to do all sorts of things for him, fix the supply chain. But, you know, he needs some good counterpunching and he needs some targets for a little bit of uh, righteous anger. One of the things he rarely talks about is we have record historic corporate profits. And these are the same people who are lobbying against Build Back Better and lobbying against extending the child tax credit. This has to be the fire in the belly that Biden returns to. And I think he shouldn't be afraid of being a little angry at some of these forces, but being the fighter on behalf of this great middle of America. So more Biden, shorter Biden, and more pointed Biden is what I would like to see. Just the 22nd edition, our colleague Greg Sargent has a very good piece up on the Post right uh, at the moment about a report done on the Virginia election, 9% of the electorate, according to this report, if I remember the number right, were Biden-Yunkin voters. Democrats desperately have to get the education issue back. And it's not about critical race theory. It's about a real disillusionment a lot of people, have, parents had during the pandemic. And we can argue about what went on and what should have been done. But Democrats, when Democrats lose the education issue, they lose elections. They, George W. Bush got a handle on the education issue, and Glenn Youngkin got a handle on the education issue. And you can criticize Youngkin for all kinds of things he said, particularly about critical race theory, but he spoke to some upset out there. Uh, Michelle Goldberg over at the uh, New York Times had a very good piece on Randy Weingarten, the head of the AFT in the Times. That issue, I think, is really alive in the country. And when Democrats lose control of it, they're in trouble. You know, you raise an interesting point here in conclusion there, and that is that as much as we think that January 6th and the assault on democracy and Trump may have changed American politics, COVID may have too. 
Yes. We're not really sure the degree to which COVID has. For those of you who don't recognize my voice, I'm David Rothkopf. I'm the host of this podcast. And I've said almost nothing during the course of the past 45 minutes because I really enjoy listening to Jen and to EJ. And I think that all of you will. It is the easiest job in the world hosting a discussion like this because you both have, have provided so many substantive points, but also, frankly, because I agree with all of those points. Really, <laughs> you know, Jen's last point, which is to say, in other words, that in a, in a world of choices as stark as those we face, nuance and splitting the difference may not be the right answer. We've got to make clear what those choices are and then stand up strongly for them. Both of you do that every time you set pen to paper, and uh, we are grateful for it. We're grateful for your joining us. This is the last podcast we are doing uh, this year. Um, and unless there is some cataclysm next week, and of course, it's always possible there's a cataclysm next week, but otherwise we will be back right after with a new and expanded schedule. Until then, we hope you have a happy holidays, a, a happy new year, and that you all make an effort to stay healthy because it's very hard to, I think here in DC, the infection rate with COVID has gone up 440% in the past two weeks. So be careful out there. Take care of yourselves. We need you back. And uh, thank you, Jen. Thank you, EJ. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hi, this is Harry Lickman, former United States attorney, current L.A. Times legal affairs columnist and creator and host of the Talking Feds podcast, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day from voting rights. Voting in our country has a specific racial connotation and a racial history and one in which it has been fundamentally about moving away from exclusion and at a snail's pace to the January 6th Select Committee. We're going to see almost every actor who's culpable in this refuse the subpoena. To U.S. national security and foreign relations. I served in the FBI in the aftermath of 9-11, and I've seen what happens when there's boots on the ground. To anything and everything at the Department of Justice. The hardest thing about coming into the Department of Justice, it's not like everything hits reset. There are court proceedings and investigations that are all midstream, and you don't control when you get to make a decision on those. To hear roundtable discussions with the country's most prominent voices from government, journalists, and law. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts.